0: Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing, You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Leah Elias. Leah studied Chinese at the University of Michigan and, after graduation, moved to China to find a job. During her five years in Beijing, she cultivated the skills that led to her becoming a Chief of Staff. Unfortunately, her lifelong struggle with perfectionism, twice, led to burnout as a Chief of Staff, and eventually she was introduced to the Enneagram, which became a tool and path away from perfectionism. She is now a full-time Enneagram coach and writer, and I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on our Enneagram Explained episode of Dear 20-something. Please welcome Leah. Hi, how's it going? Great. I'm so excited to be here to chat with you. I'm so excited to have you here. This is going to be a great episode. I am recently obsessed with the Enneagram, so we have a lot to chat about. It's my favorite thing. Exactly. We can both chat for hours about it. So before we dive into your story and the Enneagram, I do like to start every show with a bit of a fun question. Hopefully it's fun. What is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be maybe like a fun fact, maybe a conversation you had, wherever you want to take it, but something new from the past week that you learned that you're open to sharing.
1: Okay. Apparently, I just learned, you, you reminded me of a fun fact that my sister told me. Apparently, the digestive enzymes... In pineapple, are actually digesting you while you digest it. You can Google that. Whoa. It's like cannibalistic pineapple. If you eat too much pineapple and you know it's like burning and your stomach doesn't feel good, it's because it's digesting you. You shouldn't eat too much.
0: Well, that's actually very interesting. So I have this weird thing. It's called geographic tongue. It's so random, but basically, when I have fruits that are really acidic, like pineapple is a main one. Maybe, yeah. Pineapple really stands out. Sometimes bananas too. I can feel it almost like I get these like like this like redness and soreness on my tongue. Digesting you. Yeah, it's literally. It's so funny you say that because like pineapple is the most painful of all the fruit. So maybe (laughs) maybe I'm the victim. (laughs) Meanest one. Yeah. Oh my god, I know. And I love that like fruit can have a personality. where just like it's mean fruit because it's eating you. Wow, that's a very interesting fun fact. Thank you for sharing. It's sad because pineapple is so tasty. I know. In moderation. Everything in moderation. Yes. Love that. Love that for us. Okay. So then moving on to the actual nitty gritty of the podcast, let's just start with like you. Tell me about childhood, where you grew up and maybe what you wanted to be when you got older.
1: So I'm the youngest of three. I grew up in kind of like on a, on a dirt road in Michigan. So like we weren't walking into town. We were always driving if we were going anywhere. And I wanted to be an astronaut. That was like the thing I was so, so taken by like the stars and traveling. And as I got older, I actually started reading sci-fi. For some reason, I wasn't into it when I was younger. But as I read it more, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is good stuff. Sci-fi, fantasy, space,
0: all that good stuff. I didn't do any of that, but I enjoy it as a hobby. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What was your favorite thing to obsess over when it came to space? Did you love space movies when you were younger? You said you didn't read sci-fi books. Was there like one way you, you did express yourself or was it more like you admired astronauts? Did you like astrology? Like what, what were the things that piqued your interest about being an astronaut?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it was like the hard science facts. Like I had a bunch of books with like facts about how many Earths can fit inside Jupiter and how old you would be if you traveled here at like 100 miles out, you know, just like stuff like that. And I was so interested in how out there it is and how down here I am. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Very terrifying. Have you spent any more time recently thinking about space? Like obviously everyone talks about it now because we've had all these private companies doing these space missions and when we talk about life on Mars and all that stuff, is it still an interest for you or not as much anymore?
1: You know, it is. I'm trying to find where my niche is for writing because I think I have the writing in me and I tried doing a fiction novel, a sci-fi novel actually, for not having read much about. Mars, and I think the concept is really good. I just haven't been able to like master the the writing that good fiction writers do, so that's that's been on my mind a lot, kind of in the back of my mind, and also I've enjoyed following the twins, the astronaut twins that I'm suddenly blinking on it Mark Kelly and Scott Kelly they were both captains. they both were on the space station, and one is currently the one of the senators of Arizona.
0: Anyways, I I follow them a little bit. They've got interesting stories. They do have interesting stories. Yeah, my sister lives in Arizona now, so I follow some of the the political stuff there. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing all about that. I mean, the obvious question is would you go to Mars and live on Mars? Like that's something people ask, you know. It might happen in our lifetime. Is that, does that interest you? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I'm very much a cozy
1: person. And if you can, if you can make it cozy, I would love to go on a trip. I don't want to
0: be one of the pioneers. I'm not a pioneer. <laughs> That's so fair. That's so fair. And tell me about this book. I feel like we just skipped over that, and I'm just like, wait a sec, wait. Are we? <laughs> it's are not we, really written. <laughs> it's an idea for a book that we might write at one point. Yeah, I've got
1: the whole thing outlined. It's just every time, you know, and this is part of a perfectionism struggle. I started writing it a couple years ago. I have now recently grown so much that honestly i could probably sit down and try it again but it's basically the concept is a political future where deep fake fake news plays a role and it there's like a couple colonies on mars and the earth gets destroyed and they have to figure out how to start over with just everything that they have on mars And it's like a bunch of private companies and a bunch of kind of formerly sovereign nations that now have to kind of come together and be their own civilization and work together because there's only so many of them. And then there's a plot twist.
0: (laughs) Whoa, I think you got to write this book. I think
1: it's a great idea. I just This is what I'm telling you. So perfectionism is like every time I sit down and look at it, I go,
0: it's not good enough. You should just give up. I should practice at it. Yeah, I think also the timeliness of it. Like, this is the stuff that everyone's talking about. Like, even with the 2024 election coming up, I know this is happening on Earth and not Mars, obviously. But there's a lot of this, like, starting from scratch. There's a lot of, like, you know, controversy, obviously, polarization. I feel like people, even though it is more of a futuristic sci-fi novel, I actually feel like people would really gravitate towards it in the next few years because of what's going on on Earth. Yeah, yeah. Here's my thought. I've always said, like, if I ever wanted to write a book, I would just pick, like, a really beautiful, cheap place to live. Like, I've tossed around, like, a Bali or, like, which is so cheap. Or, you know, like, maybe driving out to Palm Springs and getting, like, a little place and just writing it there and, like, almost, like, setting aside time, moving away for a little bit. Maybe that's what you need. Like, to just, like, block out, like, a month in somewhere pretty cheap, easy, easy, So you don't feel like you're, you know, spending too much and just write. That's helpful. I'll think about that. Okay. If you do it, let me know because I want to read this book. I'm not a big sci-fi person, but you've convinced me. Okay. So you're thinking astronaut. We obviously did not pursue that path. Shocker for everyone that's listening. She's not gone to space yet. But then you went to college and you studied Chinese. Tell me a little bit about your fascination with the Chinese major and why you decided to study that. So I've always really enjoyed
1: learning languages. I learned Spanish kind of along the way. I have a knack for languages. And so I had read once that Spanish is like the easiest language for English speakers to learn and Chinese is the hardest. And I was like, well, I've already learned the easiest. If I can just learn the hardest, then I can definitely do anything in between. So that was kind of my reasoning for it. It's really hard. (laughs) It's not impossible. But you have to really want it. And after a while, I decided I didn't really want it. So I got to a very decent intermediate level. I lived in China. I lived there for five years. I did everything I needed to. And then I decided that was enough.
0: Was the original plan like you were going to spend a lot more time in China, like you wanted to live there? Was it just that you wanted to really learn the language and then kind of go do your own thing? Like, or did you maybe not have a plan? Like, it was just kind of like, I want to keep getting better. I don't think I had a plan. I wanted to prove that I could
1: learn any language. And when I started really getting into Chinese, I was like, I should probably go to China. So I did a study abroad. I made a lot of friends. I saw it was like pretty easy to work over there as a, as a foreigner. So I I just sort of did whatever came to mind and met a bunch of very interesting people. And there's like an entire community of, of expats there. We're all very interesting. And that made it pretty easy to live over there until I decided that I could, I could have it easier if I could just speak the same language as you know the cashier at the checkout.
0: <laughs> Fair point. You, it's so funny you say that because I've studied abroad in two places and they were England and Australia because I have the opposite view of you instead of challenging myself (laughs) to learn the hardest possible language, I was like, what's the lowest hanging fruit? And the easiest thing I could do is the countries that speak English. And so that is what I chose. I'd love to do that. But I'm very impressed with you. I think that's awesome. And it's very brave to go do that, to go to a country where, I mean, of course, there are some expats, like you said, but people really, for the most part, do not speak your first language. But people do that all the time, right? We've got so many amazing immigrants in America. They do that all the time. But it's hard to imagine as someone who's been fl- privileged enough to speak English in, as my first language in an English-speaking country. It's very cool. So how was your experience in China? Tell me about like that first gig out of school after Michigan. What convinced you? I mean, it sounds like you made some great friends in abroad. What convinced you to go get that first job in China? Well, I don't want to admit it, but there was a boy. <laughs> there's, there's, You there know what? Often there's a boy. a boy. We yeah. have to be honest about this, okay? If there's a boy, we have to talk.
1: Being okay. Honest. Okay, if I'm being honest, there was a boy, did not work out, did not become my husband. There became another boy, but I was, I I felt safe, I felt comfortable, I felt I could explore. He was that boy was very supportive. He's from Chile. He's moved on. Everything's great, but that was actually really funny because he and I would speak Spanish together as our main language of communication, because his Spanish and Chinese was better than his English. So we would speak Spanish and in the world in China. We'd speak Chinese. And then with my friends, I'd speak English. It was, very, it was a very interesting time. But yeah, the first job I got there was helping Chinese students apply to American universities. So there's a whole, as you know, there's a whole process. You got to have these essays. They don't know how to write the essays. They don't know how to write very introspectively. The students that I worked with, it was very much teaching them introspection and then writing like Americans want to read so that the admissions officers would like get it really easily. So that was a very interesting and complex job for right out of college, but very rewarding. I'm still in touch with some of them. They've gone on to
0: graduate school, engineering. They're really exceptional, really exceptional people. Wow. That's awesome. And so rewarding. I can only imagine like How impactful that was for you to see that these, like, really smart, clearly very successful people help them craft their narrative in a way where it gets seen. Because I think, like you said, a lot of it's like perception. Like, if an admissions officer doesn't understand Chinese culture to the nuances that you do, they're not going to get it. They're not going to see that this student is super talented. So that's very, very cool. There's so much competition among Chinese students applying to American
1: universities, it was wild.
0: Wow. Well, that's very cool. And it, you did that job for a few years. Is that right? Yeah, I did it for three years. I, within
1: that realm, moved into actually working with middle school students applying to private boarding schools in America, which was like an extra, I guess I like a good challenge. It was extra hard because it's extra competitive and the students are like 13, but real they're really ex- exceptional. So I got to do like, A lot of work with with that and then kind of building that program up. And I realized from that that I actually preferred the business side of it than the teaching side. I liked the teaching side, but it was was a struggle, especially when you're working with 13-year-olds. Their parents are very involved and don't know as much and argue with you a lot. So I just decided I wanted to go more into business, and that's why I ended up leaving that.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can imagine that would be very difficult. Whenever people ask me the worst age, I'm like 13. It's like that 7th grade just nobody knows who they are. Everyone's super hormonal. Yeah, I can't imagine. I The kids were great though. It was the parents. Yeah, the parents. Yeah. Yeah, the parents. But I also think when you're a kid at that stage you don't know who you are and I think that like even when you're 18 and you're applying to college you don't know who you are. But I can only imagine how hard it is for you to like put together a narrative about a 13-year-old that like likes video games and like doesn't And it and has likes to their sound friends. like them. Yeah,
1: it has to be their narrative. And so we worked really hard to make sure that it was their writing and we were just guiding them. We never wrote for them. But, you know, sometimes that's hard because some 13-year-olds have a lot to say, some don't. And you still have a job to do to, like, help them showcase themselves. It was, it was very difficult, but very rewarding. That's awesome.
0: Okay, so then you decide, I like the business side more, and you end up switching jobs. And you were there in China for another couple years, it sounds like. Can you tell me a little bit more about this next job? And how did you like it? Yeah, so I ended up getting a
1: really cool title, Vice President of Business Development and Chief of Staff. And, you know, obviously that's two jobs, and I probably should have thought about that. Like, hmm, that's two titles. In one, maybe that'll be a lot of work. It was first Speakers Bureau based in China. An American couple ran it, but they lived in China. And that was very interesting. I got to do a lot of booking Moderately well-known speakers for big speaking engagements, and so I got to, I got to negotiate with the bank or the company that was hiring. I got to negotiate with the speaker. I got to be the middleman. I got to take a commission. It was great. And then if they were really important speakers, I got to travel with them to the place. So I actually got to travel. I got to go to Shanghai with Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He invented the World Wide Web. I got to go to I think Nanjing with the former US ambassador to China Max Baucus and then I got to go to through a couple connections my boss used to work for Vice President Cheney and so when his speaking bureau booked him in Korea my boss took me along to help manage that cuz we were like working in partnership so I actually got to meet Cheney and run around with his entourage in Korea for a couple of days
0: wow that's very very cool that you were just at the heart of it all. I feel like it's so fun to meet the people that are the movers and shakers of the world, especially when you're young, you know, because they seem like these almost like only on the internet. You don't know what their personality is like. You don't know who they are. And to really get up and close personal with them, it's worth gold, I think, especially when you're young. And you can really see like how they move, how they treat people, how they talk, how they are, even in a casual setting, like if you're going to drive to a speaking event. Yeah. And
1: you know, people have a lot to say about, Cheney, I was raised in a Republican family. I am now very neutral, very actually more left than neutral. But he was a great person. He was very nice. He was pleasant. He was older. He had been on a plane for a long time. He was very polite. I had no problem with him.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what's important is it's about like the human being, and if they treat people with decency. Like there've been plenty of really successful people who are so rude or are not pleasant, and it's important that yeah, that that's really the thing that's put first. Okay, amazing. So you do the Speaker Bureau, then you become a Chief of Staff somewhere else, and this is the last gig before starting the Enneagram Studio. So tell me about that gig, and maybe we can talk a little bit too about the burnout that you mentioned in your bio that led you to maybe reevaluate some things.
1: Yeah, so there were kind of two burnouts. One was from the Speaker's Bureau, it was a lot of work. My perfectionism wanted to achieve everything. And I felt very much that if I didn't achieve everything, then I was no good. So I was constantly pushing myself and it was it was too much. It wasn't a good idea. So I took some time off from that. I moved back to the States and was kind of just doing some freelancing and stuff. And then a friend that I had met in China, another expat, was starting his startup and brought me on as kind of the employee number one generalist do all of the things which then grew into another chief of staff opportunity and that was so great I learned so much and also burned out again because again I wanted to do everything perfectly I couldn't see my value in anything other than perfection and that's a terrible way to live so I just kept burning out burning out And I was able to contribute a lot to that company. Like I helped set up kind of their operating cadence, got a lot of things going there, finances, everything from the ground up, and then was like, you know, this isn't the thing anymore. I want to do my own thing. I had been learning about the Enneagram. It had been so life-changing for me that I wanted to go give it to everyone. I, I couldn't be locked up working on somebody else's vision because I
0: needed to tell everyone what I had learned. I love that. Yeah, I think that things like that, they happen very slowly. Like you probably learned about the Enneagram a year before, six months before, and it was sort of this like voice in the back of your head. And then over time, it just becomes a little bit more dramatic until you're like, I've got to do something about it. So tell me about that decision to leave. Was that hard for you? Were you prepared for it? Did you already have the whole Enneagram studio like plan laid out? Tell me about that like pivotal moment and then we'll get into what you're doing now.
1: So I... Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew that I was very into the Enneagram. I wanted to, I was using it like at work. I was using what I had learned with my coworkers, anyone that I talked to. It was, it was the thing that I was talking about. And I was watching, you know, inflation go up, gas prices and everything. And I was like, wow, you know, this, the startup isn't paying me what it could be paying me. I should go work for a more established startup and, and really earn that money. And so I was applying to jobs. It was exactly the same time that all of the big tech layoffs were happening. So the market was completely saturated. And I got to the final, final round with a great company. And I really expected to work with them, but they kept not quite hiring me. And as I was waiting for them to make the decision, I was like, wow, you know, if they hire me, I'm afraid I won't want to do it because what I really wanna do is Enneagram stuff. So I happened to be at home in Michigan. We were having a family reunion. So I was talking with my mom and she's like, just do the thing you wanna do. And I was like, but I don't know that I'll make enough money from it. I don't know that anyone will listen to me. And she told me, and this has always worked for me. She said, okay, imagine that they've just messaged you and said, you've got the job, here's to offer. How, what's your initial feeling? And I went, crap. My feeling was, oh no, now I have to t- now I have to decide. And she was like, well, that's not the right, that's not the right thing. You don't want to feel that way. So now imagine that you've told them, you know, no, thanks. I'm going to do Enneagram stuff. And I was like, utter relief. I And I still feel relieved every day I wake up and I go, I am so glad that even though I'm not earning the money that I was yet, every time that I sit down and do this, it's meaningful and I can do my own day. I can do my own life. I can boss myself, which I never thought I wanted, but it turns out I did.
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I think a lot of people also during COVID have really reevaluated their priorities. Like I think this whole make all the money, work till 9pm, it's just not the ideal life anymore. I have friends right and left that are like quitting the corporate world and just like starting their own business. And maybe they're literally just consulting on the thing that they know about. Like, I know a lot about social media, so I'm just going to become like a social media consultant or a social media manager. Or I know a lot about the Enneagram and I love it and I'm going to start a studio or, you know, whatever it might be. Like, I want to be a TikTok creator and I love movies. So I'm just going to do TikToks about movies. Like, I think a lot of people are quitting the workforce. They want the flexibility and they know and they see the path to making their own money. And so I think. You know, your story's not uncommon. I think we're seeing this a lot, like just like across the board. And it's interesting, of course, to hear your lens. But I think that this is like a greater trend. Are you noticing that as well with the people in your life? Yes. In fact, this has been kind of funny because I've been trying to,
1: you know, use my connections and say, hey, do you want to book a team workshop? Do you want to do one on one? I can do all sorts of stuff. And I I know it's valuable. And everybody agrees, but it's never quite the right time. And one one person in particular had just gotten a new job. She was really high up in this new startup. And I was like, oh, great. You know, I've got an in with you. Can we do an Enneagram workshop and really get that going? And she said, yes. And then a couple of weeks later, she said, hey, you inspired me so much that I quit that job and I'm starting my own consulting company. And I was like, I'm so happy for you. Darn it. <laughs> I really wanted that workshop. <laughs> but like, yeah, I a lot of people that I talk to are like, tell me more about how you quit your job. And like that's, maybe I should become a consultant in
0: there. Well, you could do both for now, you know, while Enneagram's taking off. Like, because I think, right, I mean, obviously there's like these larger psychological trends that are like, we had the languishing for a while and then we had like the great resignation. And then now we have this like quiet quitting. And there's all these like phrases that are going along. I really feel like this, like, there's like this underlying like actual quitting going on. And we do need people to talk about like, doing it the right way. Cause like you need to have an emergency fund and like you do need to have certain ducks in a row before you fully just quit something. And you should have a bit of a plan. TBD, how extensive that is, but yeah, that might be an interesting, maybe we've just convinced you to start a small consulting thing on the side. You can, you know, well, I have a couple tips if, okay, if let's hear it. Your audience
1: would be interested in them. One, definitely an emergency fund. I would not have been able to do this if my husband and I didn't have an emergency fund set up. I am a stickler for finance and and everything, so I made sure I know exactly how much we spend each month. I know exactly how much comes in, how much goes out, and I have been learning how to really cut down the cost because I don't want to burn through the emergency fund. We could live like we were living, or we could get our cocoa puffs on sale. You know, get the get the really good discount. So I have an emergency fund. And then have kind of like a, I don't know what the term is, but like a dead man switch where you go like, this is the absolute limit that I'll go to before I have to go back into the workforce and, and try again. Like if I cannot get this much money by this time, or if our savings drop to this amount, then I know that I need to go back and earn some money and then re-figure out this plan. And so that's been really great for me to know that I don't have to do it perfectly. I can go get another job. Worst case scenario, I can go work at Starbucks for a couple of months and sort of get the cash and be okay while I really build this back up if it didn't work the first time.
0: Yeah, that's such a great... I call it like the expiration date too, you know? Like, what's that deadline, dead man's switch, expiration date where it's like, far in the future, I'll reevaluate. I'll see, did I hit these, you know, three metrics or whatever they are, generated this much cash have this many partnerships, this much, whatever. I think that's so important. And then emergency fund, I think everyone is different, right? Like some people can only do three months. Some people are six months. Some people are a year. Is there like an amount that you like feel like is really, you wanted to give yourself like a full year or full six months or was it, did not really work like that? It might be different too, because you have a husband. And so maybe he's able to support you a little bit as well. Well, actually the tricky thing is,
1: is that he runs a startup and they need some funding. So we're actually, we're doing kind of the same thing at the same time. We're following exactly what we love and not earning a lot of money for it and kind of testing out a couple different things to see what's the thing. Because we both really feel that there is going to be the thing that will become clear that we're supposed to be working on. So for me, it's Enneagram coaching. And I'm waiting to see, is that a lot of one-on-one? Is that teams? Is that something else? is it a book, my fiction novel, you know, I'll have to work on that. But I've been writing down everything that I've been learning from my personal journey. And I'm kind of going to throw that out into the world and see if that becomes a, a something that happens. And so my husband's doing something similar. So it's it's extra interesting because we don't have any income except for what we're, what's coming in just a little bit here and there. So I have kind of a limit in mind if our savings drops below a certain amount that I want to be like, okay, one of us has to go get the job. Job, but so far, we're okay. And we still have a couple months to go. So anything can happen,
0: really. I'm <laughs> cheering you on. I'm cheering you on. And it is, you know, while it may be a scarier at times, it's so nice that you guys get to do it together. And I think that's what's really cool is hearing you explain, like, you're both just really following your passions. And you might as well do it now, right? Like, you, we only live once. And I think you're inspiring a lot of people. I think we're going to have a mass exodus after (laughs) after this call. (laughs) Okay, so let's chat about the Enneagram Studio. And maybe we can talk a little bit about how you've structured it right now. Ooh, I love the shirt. For the people that are listening, you can't see. She just moved her camera down. Introverted, but willing to discuss Enneagram. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So tell me a little bit about your Enneagram Studio and why also Enneagram is your model of choice. Because there's obviously a lot of different personal development models and like personality test type models. So tell me a little bit more about Enneagram Studio and the Enneagram. Okay. So Enneagram
1: Studio is just the the little business that I set up to kind of do my coaching, do team workshops, do couples coaching, whatever the thing is. I think the Enneagram, understanding your own personality and the personalities of the people in your circle is Completely life changing. Like, how many times have you interacted with a coworker or someone and been like, why are they such a mystery? Why are they so annoying to me? Or why do they think I'm so annoying? And what it comes down to, I've found out, is the Enneagram, every personality type has a core fear and a core desire. And we're always trying to prevent our core fear and we're always trying to grasp for our core desire. And most of our behavior stems from doing one of those two things so for example I'm a type one there's nine types on the on the enneagram I'm a type one also known as the perfectionist makes a lot of sense and my biggest fear is being wrong being bad being incorrect irredeemable and there's there's a strong like moral sense to it and I I, I recognize that too but for me it's like if anyone has anything to tell me like, Hey, you did that wrong. I'm like, oh God, no, like I need to do it perfectly. And desire is usually the opposite. I want to be good. I want to be correct. I want to be approved of. And so if I'm arguing with you about anything, it's probably because I want you to recognize that I'm correct and I'm good and don't think I'm wrong. And that's been so helpful in understanding arguments with my husband because he's a type four, the romantic individualist. And his deepest fear is being seen as mundane normal his biggest desire is to be seen as special and unique and i need to be seen as right and so you can imagine that our arguments are a lot about like recognize that i am telling you something special and i'm like recognize that i am not stupid i need you to recognize this and once we were able to go down to that layer all of our arguments have become like hey are you trying to be right right now oh yeah yeah i am trying to be right Are you trying to make sure that I see you as special? Because I see you as special. That's not the problem. Oh, yeah, great. And like all of our arguments just dissipate immediately. It's completely life changing. I want everyone to know.
0: Wow. I feel like it's like when you have like a the best meal of your life or you watch the most amazing movie of your life, you're just like, I need everyone to do this and watch this and know this. It sounds like- It'll change your life. It'll Yeah. It'll really change your life. So that's a great example for couples, obviously, right? Like if you can really understand, I think it helps you. You know, like a lot of psychologists say when you're in an argument with like, let's say a parent or a partner, it should be, you and the partner versus the problem instead of you versus the partner, right? Like it's this idea that like you together as a team are tackling the issue versus you attacking each other. I feel like this would really help you do that because you're almost like looking at the problem through the framework of the Enneagram. Like this is how you're seeing the problem. This is how you're seeing the problem. And you're together as a team using the framework versus attacking each other. Is that right?
1: So yes, that's exactly right. So actually I from my chief of staff background, I have been enjoying paying attention to the like the personal learnings that I've gained and writing them out in a process for other people to follow. So that's actually the book that I'm actually working on is all of the processes that I've learned written in a way so that anyone can kind of go from zero to a hundred just by following the process. I hope. That's my plan. And one of them is how to resolve nearly any argument. And it's as simple as that. Learn your enneagram type, understand your core fear and desire, understand the partner, your spouse, your partner, your coworker, whatever the argument, your mom, whatever the argument, whoever it's with, understand their personality type. And even if you don't know it, you can kind of begin to guess. There's once you have kind of a framework, you can hypothetically assign what it might be and go, "Yeah, okay, maybe they're afraid that I'm seeing them as incompetent." Or maybe they're afraid that I'm creating conflict and she's afraid of conflict. Once you know that, then you can go, hey, are you defending this idea? And work it out with them and then say, okay, I think I understand your idea. I'm defending this idea. They're actually totally different ideas. How? Because I need this and you need that. How can we work it out so that we both get what we need? And you know, the word it's compromise. How can we compromise? But everybody... It's a, it's not a great word. You know, it's, it's, it kind of brings you down. Like, how can we compromise? My husband and I call it finding the middle path. We're on a journey together. We are married, so we have to do it together, but we both want to make sure that we're happy with it. So what we do is every time that there is an issue that's not easily resolved, we work through this process. What are you defending? What are you trying to gain? This is what I'm doing. And then we, over time, sometimes this takes weeks, we're currently in the middle of one that's taking a couple months to really find the middle path. What do you want? What do I want? How can we both have that in a by doing the exact same thing, not by doing two completely opposite things? And it's really good. And I don't have a resolution for the one we're in yet, but we've resolved a lot of other issues this way.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, well, I feel like your book sounds like it'll be very valuable so people can use these frameworks. I hope so. Even in posting on social media, you know, it's just like, this is the framework that we use and this is what's helpful because I think a lot of people, like you said, there's always going to be conflict, whether it's with partners, parents, friends, whatever it looks like. So it's great to hear that you found a good framework that works for you guys. And I imagine it will work for a lot of other people. What's your recommendation for individuals that learn their type? So, you know, you learned you were a one right? And like you know, we said, not a shocker. It was the perfectionist one. Are there any recommendations you have for people that learn their type and maybe want to get better or want to be more well-rounded or want to work on their greatest fear or whatever the thing is? Do you have a protocol for individuals? Yes. So
1: there's like several amazing things about the Enneagram and that is one entire way of looking at it is how can I grow personally? I am the perfectionist. I have these negative tendencies, but if I use them in a healthy way, they're a huge blessing to the world. I, as a type one, have an eye for detail, organization. I want things to be good. I have an ideal and I have the motivation to go after it. If I overdo that, it's going to stress everyone out, including myself. I'm going to burn out. My coworkers will be mad at me because I'm constantly harping on them. But if I learn how to Use it and express it in a healthy way, it becomes extremely helpful. I can solve almost any problem just by like really looking at it and thinking about it and going after it. I can help people organize things. I can organize personal growth into processes that then people can follow. So, the Enneagram is some people call it like a GPS to personal growth. I think of it kind of like a, a syllabus. You know, in college, the first day you get the syllabus, this is what we're going to be working on this semester. We're going to be working on these negative tendencies. We're going to be working on growing these strengths. And we're going to work on building in these extra, you know, whatever you want to add to it. And the Enneagram, every type has kind of like the healthiest level that you can be at and the unhealthiest. And most people are in kind of the average. And in every any given moment or with a particular issue, you're kind of moving up between health or unhealth. And what it does is it shows you if you want to be a healthy type one, then you need to learn how to be serene, calm, and not like anxious. And so then you're like, okay, great. How do I, how do I just learn that? And I don't actually have like the perfect framework for this because it kind of just came in, in, in fits and spurts. But as, I've, as it's been revealed to me, that certain things I'd been believing were not true. Like, I have to do everything 150% or I'm no good. Like, that was a rule that I was following. As that began to be revealed to me, and I went, oh, wait, that's not true. I would practice going, well, what if I just give 95%? That's still really good. Nobody could complain that I gave 95%. And just see, was it fine? Yeah, it was fine. Everybody was happy. I was creating all of this extra stuff on top of myself and as I let that go everything began to open up I began to see okay so if, if that was a lie maybe this other thing was a lie and maybe doing something over isn't a failure it's doing it better the next time and just sort of learning how to use my perfectionist quality for good and not evil and so every type has that path for them every type has a gift And it's probably your biggest struggle, but it's also your biggest gift. And the Enneagram shows you how to shift that so it becomes good and not a struggle.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about it in the context of being a type one as well, because when you hear perfectionists, like you might have your own biases around it, but when I hear it, I'm like, oh wow, like she crushes it. Like she does so much. She's, but I can see how At an extreme, that can be crippling and that can be a problem. So, I will reveal in this moment my type. And then I would love to hear if you have any thoughts on it. Oh, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think a lot of our listeners, so I do bring on a lot of like entrepreneurs and like people that work in business. And so, I've seen, as I'm sure you have too, especially a lot of founders tend to be a type three. And that is also my type. And so, I'm a three wing two because I, I know the two is like the helper. And a lot of what I do is through the lens of like impact and selflessness. I try at least. So yeah, do you have any thoughts on the three? Any anything you want to share?
1: Yeah. So, well,
0: first I noticed that the
1: podcast is part of your two. I mean, you're using your three motivation and drive to get it going, but the two you're, you're really offering something to a specific group of people. And so I, I highly recognize that as a two and I think it's really great. <laughs> the three is the successful achiever. And so they're motivated by being successful and looking successful. And so that's part of the struggle for threes is they know how to, especially three twos, know how to read people know how to understand their body language and know how to kind of chameleon shift into what's the right thing for this group of people? How can I fit in and show off here? And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a very useful skill. But it can become tricky when you don't know who you are anymore. Threes sometimes get lost in being the person that they think everyone wants them to be. And then they struggle to learn who they really are so that's part of the struggle for threes they also they want to be successful they want to climb the ladder they want to show whatever their measurement is for success they want to show that but if they can't achieve that they might pretend and that's also part of the chameleon is like they might drive flashier cars or do something just to kind of show like look i'm i'm being successful but on the inside they're feeling really bad so One of the weaknesses that threes struggle with is this issue of deceit. And every type has an issue. Mine is resentment. Twos is pride. Threes is deceit. And they're kind of deceiving themselves because they don't really know who they are. And they might be deceiving people around them by saying like, look, I'm this, but I really just am doing this because I need your help. And I'm making
0: it sound awful, but threes are really great. Yeah. I, noticed, no, no, no. I just wanted to get to the very like important stuff. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, I love it. This is very interesting. I'm like, I'm obsessed with all this like self-awareness personality stuff. And I also think for me, like there are parts of the three that really resonate. And then there are parts of the three where I'm like, I don't know. Like, yes, I agree. But for me, like I drive a Toyota Camry and like I will never buy a flashy car, you know? Like, I'm just like, I don't really ever wear makeup, you know? Like, so there's parts of it where I'm like, but I do care a lot about success and achievement. And it's like, I put my career first and I'm very ambitious. And that is definitely like how I come off, I would say. Like I have a podcast, you know what I mean? But I think for me, what I struggle with, and I'd love to hear your thoughts too, is like with some of these personality things, like as you're talking, there's some things where I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally, like I care about my career, I care about that. But then when it comes to like, let's say the vanity part or... Some of the things I'm like, I don't, maybe, like maybe I do. I definitely like, you know, like to dress nice for things. And I care about like people knowing what I'm doing so that they can be part of it. But how do you deal with like the nuance of like not everything fitting? Or do you find that that's not really the case? It's maybe something that's more subconscious and I'm just not aware of it.
1: Oh, it's totally both. So I'm of the, the Enneagram camp that you're not just your main type the kind of traditional thinking is you're the one type and then you use one wing. But I'm, I follow some coaches who are more of the, you are your main type. You have access to both of your wings. So you have a four wing that probably shows up, but you don't notice it as much, or you might push it away because you're not sure what to do with it. You also have two paths. Traditionally, they're called your growth path and your stress path. But I'm of the camp that you use tendencies from both paths in healthy and unhealthy ways and the way to kind of like true balance is to recognize what unhealthy thing you're using from each part of your enneagram and how to then switch that into the healthy thing and then you become more balanced in each of those paths each of those wings and tendencies. So if you're if you're not seeing something like for example a 3 is connected to the 9 And the nine, when they want to avoid conflict, they can kind of withdraw and they can kind of just go, I can't deal with the world today. This isn't my problem. I'm going to close the door, get under the covers. That's something that nines tend to do when they're feeling stressed. But nines also have this really great gift for mediating. They can see all sides of a discussion. And when they're able to kind of like healthily explain that and not avoid the conflict, they can help resolve a lot of arguments. And that's a really useful thing. So I don't know if you see either of those characteristics in you, but that would be like an example it might be like, wow, I'm, I'm really like wanting to be successful, but I really want everyone to understand each other. And I would say that was your nine.
0: Yeah. I want everyone to understand each other, but I also would say I'm not conflict avoidant. Like I'm very much like, this is, I'm like super honest. So I'm like, this is what's going on. Like that, you know, I don't understand this or this isn't very nice or whatever. I'm very, very forward. So yeah, I mean, I think honestly, like all humans have their nuances. It sounds like what's really important is to understand your main type, your two wings, your growth path and your stress path. And I think what what happens, and we do this a lot as human beings because it's easier is we oversimplify everything and we say, I'm just my type and that's it. And like, I'm just going to read that section on the little blurb on the website or in the book and that's it. And it sounds like, What's really important is really understanding all these different elements to it, identifying like what resonates, what doesn't, and then applying that so that you can, your life can get better. Am I thinking about that the right way? Yes, exactly. Because
1: every person has their type. They have their wings. They might choose based on things that have happened in their life. They might choose tendencies from different paths or different wings. Their parents influence them. I see both my two-wing and my nine-wing. My mom is a nine. So I see like my cozy withdrawal tendencies because I watched her do that. I watched her handle stress that way and went, yeah, I like that. I can do that. And it's part of me naturally. So I just go towards it naturally. And then my dad is a type one. He's also a perfectionist. And so a lot of the things that I care about and think really matter are the things that really matter to him. But my mother-in-law is also a type one, but she looks completely different because she's had a completely different life.
0: But when we all get together, she and my dad get along really well because they understand each other. (laughs) That's so awesome to hear. Yeah. I'm very curious about this stuff. I also think the family dynamics, which you just mentioned, so interesting. Yeah, and that like families tend to cluster like around a certain few numbers is I mean at least that's my family. Is that what you found? Yes and no. My family
1: does. My my parents are a 1 and a 9 and then the three kids are a 3, a 9 and a 1. So all connected, all related to each other on on the Enneagram. But my husband's family is a, the parents are a 1 and a 5 and the two boys are an 8 and a 4. So there's like they're all connected. The boys are all connected to their dad's five in a way. The eight's connected to the five and the four has got a five wing. So I think that there's a connection there, but technically it's not genetic and it's only half nurture. So it really could go any way, but I am interested in diving into that more and seeing if there's really more. My mom is an identical twin. She's a nine. Her identical twin is a five. And I thought that was very interesting. They are very similar, but they are totally different.
0: Wow. Yeah, I feel like even part of this too is like mapping out the family history. Yeah. I actually want to do like a genealogy
1: of like, so tell me about grandma. What were her fears? I, I think she might be a six. How did that affect you? How does that affect me? How will that affect my kids?
0: Yeah. I'm like sitting here like with my business brain. I'm like trying to come up with like all your different revenue paths. I'm like, okay, you could do it for individuals. Oh, you could do it with families. You could do it for couples. <laughs> I'm like trying to get through it. I'm like, okay, that works. Newly engaged couples,
1: premarital counseling. I'm offering that to my my cousin. She just got engaged. They're they're a one and a four, just like me and my husband. So I'm like, let me take you under my wing. Let me tell you everything I learned, help
0: you avoid as many problems as possible. I love it. Also take me under your wing. No pun intended because we're talking about wings. Um. Uh-huh. Okay, well, I could keep chatting with you about this for a long time. Thank you so much for your time. I do have one final question for you that we ask all our guests. I'm sure the obvious answer is take the Enneagram. But if you have, let's say we're not going to make it Enneagram specific. If you have one piece of advice for all 20-somethings, what would that one piece of advice be?
1: I would make it Enneagram related because I think it's the highest ROI. It's the least amount of work for the highest ROI. And so my, my suggestion would be learn your Enneagram type I can give you a link for your show notes if you want for like a free test. The tests are okay. They're like 50% accurate. It'll give you kind of your top likely numbers. And then you really need to do the reading to understand like, is that me? Is it not? You can book a session with me or any Enneagram coach if you want kind of like an expert opinion on the nuances between the different numbers. But learn your type, learn your core fear and desire, and then start thinking how is that popping up in my current life? How did it pop up in my past? Because you're actually going to be able to heal a lot of stuff from your past by visiting old memories, even though it hurts a little bit and going, oh, I was desperately trying to avoid my core fear here. And that's why I did that thing that I hate that I did. And now I can go back to like mom and be like, mom, you know, that one argument, I am so sorry. I could not explain to you how desperately I needed this thing. And then she's able to go, wow, I couldn't explain to you how much I needed this thing. And just you'll be able to heal past memories and you'll be able to make better choices once you understand why you do the things that you do. It's going to change your life. I can't wait. I want
0: everyone to know. That's why I quit my job, to do this all the time. (laughs) I love it. You're a great saleswoman, I will say. You're good at the Enneagram. You're also good at selling what you do. And also like back to the pitch for quitting your job. If you're so passionate about it, like clearly you just ooze passion for this and you really believe in it, people are going to jump on board. And I'm sure everyone listening to this is like, you know what? Okay, I'm done. I'm sold. I'm going to, I'm going to learn about the Enneagram, you know? So. Right. um, Give me a call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Give her a call. And we'll obviously link everything in the show notes if you want to chat with her more. Thank you again for being here. This was so fun. Thank you. I could talk about it all day long. I really appreciate the chance. Of course. Of course. And what's your shirt again? What? Introvert, but willing to discuss the Enneagram, right? Yes, I made it. It's on my Etsy shop. It's totally just a cheap shirt, but it makes me laugh. It's so good. It's so good.
1: Introverted, but I'll discuss the Enneagram.
0: So good. Well, thank you so much for being here and I hope you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.